The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said to the twelve, A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher, and the slave like the master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted, so do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> His name was Jeremiah, and he was a PK. He was a priest's kid who early in his life, still just a boy in his words, had an experience of somehow or other hearing or feeling God speaking to him, telling him that God had a purpose, a calling in mind for him ever since before he was even born, and that calling was to be a prophet. Prophets in the Bible being people who, uh, whose calling wasn't to speak about God, prophets were called to speak for God. Prophets didn't say things like, here's an idea I have. Prophets said, thus says the Lord. And then they said words that they said were words that God gave them to say. Like many other biblical prophets, the majority of them, as far as I can tell, Jeremiah's initial response was thanks but no thanks. At which point God informed them that this really wasn't up for a debate. At which point Jeremiah went on to discover, and you may have heard him go in depth about this in that reading for today, he discovered that when God, via some kind of a divine direct drive, gives you words to speak and you don't speak them, those words become like a fire burning you up from the very insides of your bones until you do speak them. And so he had to speak them, even though in Jeremiah's case he never really in his whole life got to the point where he really wanted to. For the words Jeremiah felt compelled to speak were invariably words of truth spoken to power, with the powerful reacting predictably. Jeremiah railed against the powerful rich, 
who had become powerful and rich and now maintain their power and riches by ignoring faithfulness to God and ignoring and abusing and using and uh, disregarding those most in need, thus to become even more rich and powerful. To them, Jeremiah said, well, here's a sampler. Here's what God says. Scoundrels are found among my people. They take over the goods of others. Their houses are full of treachery through which they have become great and rich and grown fat and sleek. They have no limits in deeds of wickedness. They do not judge with justice the cause of the orphan. They do not defend the rights of the needy. He also said to the powerful rich that unless they did an abrupt turn back to God, accompanied by a compassionate turn to those most in need, there would soon be hell to pay at the hands of their enemies. The politically rich and powerful, of course, in the kings in Jeremiah's time, though in their hearts they were far from God, they nevertheless enjoyed um, the sound and the political optics of good God narratives. And so for that purpose, they employed their own prophets. And here's a surprise. The prophets they employed told them what they wanted to hear. That being that their riches and their power were proof that God was pleased with them. So pleased that God would continue giving them wealth and power and in protecting them from their enemies and finally even vanquishing their enemies. For those prophets, the court appointed prophet, those prophecies, the court appointed prophets were well compensated for his prophecies. Jeremiah was ridiculed, mocked, threatened, persecuted, and physically abused. Our text for today follows a scene in which he had just said once again that Jerusalem was going to hell in a handbasket and would soon fall to its enemies, at which point a priest named Pasher physically assaulted him and then locked him up in stocks overnight where people could see him and mock him, and I suppose if they wanted to, they could spit on him. Released the next day, Jeremiah said to Pasher, Thus says the Lord, Your friends will die by the sword of Babylon. And those who don't will be taken captive to Babylon. And you will be taken captive to Babylon where you and all those to whom you prophesied falsely will die and be buried never to come home again. Which is where we come to our text for today. I had a friend who said he's never preached from Jeremiah. I thought about that this week. Actually, I like preaching from Jeremiah, sorry. Uh, today, Jeremiah speaks his own, doesn't speak God's words to the people. Today, he speaks his own words to God. Telling God that he hates being God's prophet, even accuses God of tricking him into it by not giving him a clue of what he was getting into as a prophet. And then he does say that thing about he wants to quit, but he can't quit because when God gives him words to speak, they burn his bones from the inside out until he speaks them. Plus, he said, nobody listens to me. All these years I'm saying, repent, repent, or the nation will be destroyed, and nada. Same old, say it old, I'm tired of it. As far as I'm concerned, you can wipe this nation off the face of the earth right now. Let me see it happen. Which God doesn't do. God instead tells Jeremiah to keep saying the things 
that nobody has ever listened to. And as it goes on, it turns out pretty much nobody ever did. And so in time, in God's time, the time did come for the true prophet to be revealed the way invariably in the end true prophets are finally revealed and that is when their words come true. Which is exactly what happened in 587 BC when Babylonians overran Jerusalem, destroyed its walls, burned its temple to the ground, stole everything of any value to take back with them and also because this was their MO, they took back with them the leaders of both church and state took them into exile in Babylon, leaving everybody else, uh, the lower class, leadership, leaderless, to somehow eke out a living in the ruins, which according to Jeremiah, they'd all actually been doing for decades in their own way, as those who had been their leaders weren't paying attention to them anyway. The purpose of the exile, according to all the true prophets, was not that God had abandoned or turned God's back to God's people, but rather that God's people had abandoned God. And God wanted them back. But that could not happen without repentance. Turning back to God and then living according to God's desires for them and for all which never did happen prior to the exile, which, said the true prophets, was why God allowed the exile, even willed the exile to happen. In Babylon, repentance would come eventually, but not immediately. Because here's what happened immediately. They did immediately, many of them, turn and pray to God but the prayers were that God would destroy their enemies and return them back home again. Oh, Jerusalem, they said. Jerusalem, they prayed. We want to go back to you. We miss you so because these are terrible times. Those were such great times. Cursed, damned, destroyed be those who took those great times from us. To which Jeremiah said that God would, in God's time, lead them home again. But contrary to false prophets still fault prophesying falsely, he said that's not going to happen anytime soon. So settle down, he told them. Settle in, he told them. Make the best of your life right here in Babylon, he told them, because this is going to take a while. Because why? Because remember, these exiles, by and large, comprised the privileged and the powerful who had been stripped of privilege and power and who now, in desiring to return to those good old days, were revealing that even now they had learned nothing at all. Because the days they now fondly recalled as the good old days may have been good for them. But in fact, all the while, their faithlessness in those days had sucked the soul out of their nation, and their greed and apathy had sucked the hope and life out of the poor. God, said Jeremiah, and the true prophets now, had no interest in listening to them in Babylon, weeping for what used to be, waiting them rather, writing for them rather at long last to heed the prophetic call to repent of what used to be and to turn instead what, not, what God is now calling into being, that being not the so-called good old days, 
but rather new and faithful days with faithful people whose faithful desire and faithful efforts are for a good and just future that is good and just for all. The prophet Isaiah, writing to the exiles in Babylon at this time, put it this way, do not remember the former things. Do not consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. It springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Old Testament scholar and author Walter Brueggemann is, uh, is one of the giants in my world. He's in his 90s now. He's been a giant since I was in seminary. Uh, his most recent book, which I finished recently, is titled Ancient Echoes, Refusing the Fear-Filled, Greed-Driven Toxicity of the Far Right. The title sounds kind of imposing, I realize, um, but the book is quite accessible. Brueggemann, in this short book, responds biblically to eight what he calls truth claims made by the radical right in this country, including and especially the radical right wearing religious garb who have jumped into bed with those with whom they have. One of the truth claims Brueggemann counters in one of his chapters is the belief in what he calls a mythic and perfect yesteryear, when America was great. And that mythic and perfect yesteryear is an America we must now return to in order for America to be great again. Brueggemann likens those sentiments to the sentiments and the nostalgic longings of the privileged and powerful back in Babylon, pining nostalgically for the days when they were in Jerusalem and things were so good. No, 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 says Jeremiah to them, claiming that then, and no, 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 Brueggemann claims, Jeremiah would say to those claiming that same thing now. For then and now, those good old days were, of course, good for those with privilege and power. But they were anything but good for the majority who had no power or privilege. Or in the case of this country, the America many want to go back to in order to be great again was in fact an America great mostly if you are white and great even more so if you were male. The facts are facts even though too many of these days don't want facts to interfere with their opinions. But the fact is in those good old days that many pine for, blacks and whites had separate bathrooms, bus seats, drinking fountains, restaurants, apartment buildings, national uh, schools and neighborhoods, with a national guard being necessary to enforce a court order for a black child to be able to go to a white school. And too, in those great days, there existed in this great land, many would say it exists still and they have evidence, two radically different systems of justice, one for whites and another for non-whites. And two, in those great old days that many do want to return to in order to be great again, humanity took and took and took from the planet, then to return toxins and pollutants to the planet, all the while ignoring the increasingly vocal prophets who said that that pattern will not end well for us or the planet without repentance, and whose prophecies are proving true more and more every year and even every week. And in the churches in those days, they, were, they had clergy, they were all men. 
in most cases, women didn't even have a, have a right to vote in formal gatherings of the people of God. The men voted for them. And two, in those good old days, women who were harassed and abused had few, if any, legal or supportive systems for pushing back against abuse and harassment or to hold harassers and abusers accountable. And two, in those days, abuse of children, including abuse of children in places that called themselves Christian places, was routinely swept under the carpet. The abusers, the offenders then way too often, including offenders, clergy, cunning clergy then being slapped a slap on the wrist and sent down the road where way too often that was just a chance to offend again. And then too, in those great old days to which many do want to return, thus for this nation to be great again, to come out in your life or to be outed in your life was oftentimes literally life-threatening. Now you need to listen to me carefully here, please. My intent is not to diss the past. My intent is not to diss America, but the call of the prophets is not a call back to a past which is in fact an imagined past. It is a call from the future that God imagines and calls God's people forward toward. But that call cannot be heard if we nostalgically pine for an imagined past rather than learning from our past by recalling it truthfully, including the good, and there was, oh my goodness, so much good. But also in this still sin-broken world, recalling too the bad and the ugly, which can only be moved forward from if named and repented of. I do that as a Lutheran who loves being a Lutheran. I personally say that I regard Martin Luther as truly one of the absolute giants in the history of the Christian church. Having said that, it's also important to acknowledge the truth that as great and visionary and courageous and faithful as Luther was, he nevertheless, perhaps because he was a product of his time, had said, said, said some horrible things about the Jews. And him having the stature he did, those horrible things were recalled by those in power in Germany in the 1930s and 1940s. We Lutherans have needed to rebuke and repent of that in order to open the doors of possibility to a future that rises to a new way of life that leaves anti-Semitism behind. Can't do it unless you name it. So too, as an American who loves being an American, I say that it is not unpatriotic, it is not un-American to know and to say and to teach, even in our history books, that our nation's founding fathers were great and visionary, in most cases men, who nevertheless in many cases owned slaves, and for the sake of political purposes and also economic purposes embedded inequality between slave and free into the constitution of this great land and we Americans who do love this nation must repentantly acknowledge that in order to open the doors of possibility to a future that rises to a new way of life that leaves racism behind us. And so too as an American who personally thinks that Abraham Lincoln was the best president this country has ever had it's not un-American or unpatriotic to know and to say that he nevertheless also ordered what still stands as the largest mass execution in this nation's history when he ordered the hanging of 38 Sioux fighters in Minnesota before 4,000 
watch onlookers. And those fighters did not have any legal counsel. Their trials in most cases were less than five minutes long. And in most cases, they did not understand one word of the language in which they were being convicted. And we, who, Americans who do love this great land, must repentantly acknowledge that in order to open the doors of possibility to, to, a, to a future that rises to a new way of life that leaves discrimination and ill treatment of Native Americans behind us. That's what Paul says in our reading from Romans uh, when he says that justified by faith, made whole in our relationship with God, not by works but by the love and grace of God and the saving work of Jesus Christ, we are not now called to go back to live the lives we used to live. But we are rather called to be raised up from the powers of sin and death and fear and hate, now to live life that is the real thing. For it is the life God created us to live, which is not life turned back to the past, pining for what used to be, but rather life in the direction of the love which holds the future in its hands by living here and now in the direction of love. God's life, love alive in God's church that is love for all people. Jesus, in our reading for today, does give us a reality check in that regard. When he tells us that if you do live in the direction of the loving desires of God for all people, don't be surprised when some people push back against that, or get angry at that, or even hate you for that. For we do live in a world we do live in, where love that is love for all and love that is love for the truth is truly countercultural anymore. Love anyway, Jesus says. Follow me on love's path, he says, and by all means, don't be afraid, he says. For it is not fear, it is love that holds both you and the future in its hands. Truly. Amen.